Five years ago, five years almost to the day, the backup quarterback on the worst team in the NFL sat quietly on the bench. The stadium was half empty. It was an exhibition game, one of four practice games each team plays before the real games kick off. There's no national television coverage, and even the tailgating in the parking lot was kind of half-assed. Starters don't play much in the preseason, if at all, and for this game, even the backups were sitting. So this tall, skinny quarterback was in street clothes, shorts and a hoodie. Just before the game, they played the national anthem. Now, the NFL started playing the national anthem for fans during the Second World War. But usually, players would just hang out in the locker room until it was done. Then, in the late 60s, some teams started standing on the sidelines for the anthem. That was during the Vietnam War. I'll come back to that in a few minutes. But this was 2016. And even without a war to justify it, every player on every team was expected to stand at attention for one minute and 55 seconds. That's how long it takes to play the Star-Spangled Banner. But on this day, in that half-empty stadium, one player decided not to. That decision became the most enduring symbol of social activism for this generation, my generation. I'm 23, by the way. So why did this player, a guy whose name 90% of Americans couldn't spell correctly even if they tried, have such an impact? Simple, because Colin Kaepernick is an athlete. That's what this series wants to understand. Why is athlete activism so powerful? Why do some athletes pay an outsized price for taking their views public? Does all the pain and emotion of athlete activism really lead to meaningful change? And where will it all lead? I'm Soroya Tinker, and this is Shut Up and Play, an inside look at athletes as activists. I'm a professional hockey player. I played defense for the Metropolitan Riveters in New York City, and now I'm with the Toronto Six. I'm also a Black woman, so that makes me kind of unique. In fact, most of my life, I played on teams where I was the only person of color. Sometimes I even played on all boys teams because I wanted to compete at the highest level available to me. So on those teams, I was the only girl too. So yeah, pretty unique. That background has shaped who I am as an athlete and who I am as an activist. But there's a lot about the world I don't know. And that's why I'm doing this podcast. I started with Colin Kaepernick because he's become the touch point for any conversation about athletes as activists. That has always amazed me. Why him? Why that moment? We are also going to try and answer the question, why do some athletes' actions have such a huge impact? We'll do that by talking to athlete activists who are in the middle of the fight right now. We'll look at the past, to the 50s and 60s, when many athletes, black and white, women and men, were doing very similar protests over very similar issues. And we'll also look to the future, to explore how athletes being activists can coexist with the billion-dollar business complex that is professional sports. But first, back to Colin Kaepernick. Colin Kaepernick decided not to stand for the anthem because, well, there are a lot of reasons. 
This is how he described it. I mean, ultimately, it's to bring awareness and make people, you know, realize what's really going on in this country. There are a lot of things that are going on that are unjust. People aren't being held accountable for. And that's something that needs to change. That's something that, you know, this country stands for freedom, liberty, justice for all. And it's not happening for all right now. People tried to paint Colin with all sorts of labels. He was anti-cops, anti-military, even anti-American. I know a lot of people's initial reactions thought it was bashing the military, which it wasn't. That wasn't my intention at all. I think now that we have those things cleared up, we can get to the root of what I was saying and really address those issues. One specifically is police brutality. There's people being murdered unjustly and not being held accountable. Cops are getting paid leave for killing people. That's not right. That's not right by anyone's standards. He was well aware that his protests would get attention. I mean, that was the point, to get people talking. And man, did they talk. My understanding, at least, is is that uh, he's exercising his constitutional right to make a statement. I think there's a long history of sports figures doing so. That's Barack Obama. He was president at the time. If nothing else, what he's done is he's generated more conversation around some topics that need to be talked about. Meanwhile, Donald Trump, who was a candidate for president at the time, said this. Wouldn't you love to see one of these NFL owners when somebody disrespects our flag to say, get that son of a bitch off the field right now, out, he's fired. He's fired! It wasn't just politicians who noticed. This was early fall 2016, and the U.S. Olympic team had just returned from competing at the Summer Games in Rio. So when I came back from the Olympic Games and, um, you know, the world watched um, Kaepernick kind of take the biggest dance um, in sports history. That's Gwen Berry. She's a hammer thrower on the U.S. national track and field team. I was actually surprised only because when, when you're an athlete, sometimes you have to fit in, right? Sometimes you're taught and mentored to be part of the American dream and act like the American and uphold this patriotism that we so-called have to uphold because this is our beloved country, right? So when he kneeled, it's just like, okay, who is this guy? What does he stand for? What did he say? What did he do? I wanted to know why he felt the way he felt, um, what he endured, and ultimately what he was trying to get across to America. And everything he said, everything he stood for was right on, right on target. And I've always felt the same way. Gwen felt the same way, but she isn't an NFL quarterback. I do the hammer throw. Nobody really cares. Nobody really knows what it is. But even hammer throwers have their moment in the spotlight. A few years later, you were at the Pan Am Games in Peru in 2019, and you win gold. Uh, Walk me through that. I just won my medal. I was tired. I had to wait an hour between winning and then the medal ceremonies. Mind you, it was cold. It was one of the hardest competitions of my life. Uh, My back was hurting. You know, I was happy I won. I didn't throw as far as I wanted to throw. However, when I got on the podium, you know, something just came over me to say, like, I know for sure that this anthem does not speak to us. And it's obvious that 
people don't even want to see me here because they'd rather see the typical white American, um, you know, girl went for America. So, you know, something came over me and I was just like, you know what? I'm representing my people because people don't want to see us here, but we're here and we thrive and we are resilient despite everything that's always thrown against us. And so I took my stand. Standing on the podium, Gwen lifted her right arm straight above her head and with her bare hand made a fist. And as soon as I got off the podium, a man asked me, he was just like, why did you put your fist in the air? And I was just like, to represent my people. And he was just like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that. I, I feel you just because I play a predominantly white sport. I wanted to kneel yeah. and I talked to my coach about it. And I told him that I simply wouldn't play if he wouldn't let me kneel. So I figured, well, people don't want me here already. I've spent my whole career kind of fighting back. So, I mean, I don't, I don't care at this point as to what people think of me. So I, I made the choice to kneel and then raise my fist the next game. So I definitely understand where you're coming from. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah. It's, it's like, it's, it's just crazy. Like, here we are. We were forced over here, one. We built this freaking country, too. We have years and years and centuries of unpaid labor, three, yeah. with no reparations coming forward. And it's just like, you still don't want to see us here, but you capitalize off our lives, off our trauma, off our culture. But when it comes time for us to stand up for ourselves and say enough is enough, it's a problem. Yeah. It's like, come on. It doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. One word comes up a lot when we talk about athletes protesting during the national anthem. Respect. We're told we need to do it respectfully. That's why Colin Kaepernick decided to drop to one knee rather than sit. Because a retired soldier told him that was more respectful. And it's crazy. It's crazy, right? I have to find a, a respectful way to peacefully protest. But you guys kill us and our lives don't matter to you guys disrespectfully. It doesn't make sense, right? So you still try to hold this notion, well, you know, even though I'm mad at this country, let me find a respectful way to show that I'm mad at this country. I hate that, but that's, I mean, that's what it was. And and what about the U.S. Olympic Committee? You received a letter from them? Yes. Yeah, so my punishment was handed down from the, from the IOC, which is the International Olympic Committee, which was um, a 12-month sanction, basically silencing my voice, um, any gestures in the field of play, or anything too risque or too rebellious via social media. And what was your reaction to that? How did how did that make you feel? Um, I was pissed. Only because, you know, here I am peacefully protesting. I didn't kick anybody. I didn't hit any I didn't push anybody off the podium. I didn't say, you know, I hate America. Like, you know, I didn't speak any type of slander into, you know, onto the country. Yeah. It was just me saying Black unity. Black people are here. Here we stand. Here we are. Recognize us and respect us. So mm -hmm. the fact that they literally tried to silence me, you know, I was I was pissed. I mm -hmm. didn't I couldn't believe it because most of the athletes under the USOPC are black athletes. Most other athletes that gain medals under the USOPC are black athletes. Yes. <laughs> so don't try to silence me when the people like me pay your bills. Yeah. Gwen's protest was nearly identical 
to what John Carlos and Tommy Smith did at the 1968 Olympics in Mexico, raising a single fist in the air while standing on the podium. Collins' refusal to stand at attention during the anthem was also repeating a moment in history, albeit one that has largely been forgotten. Cleveland Municipal Stadium is rocking. 81,000 fans cram shoulder to shoulder waiting for the game to start. The Browns are 4-1 and on their way to a division championship. The whole city is excited. Meanwhile, in the visitors' locker room, where the St. Louis Cardinals are getting ready to take the field, they're talking about something else. The National Anthem. The week before, they had lost a home game to the Minnesota Vikings. The Vikings were a great team. They would go on to win the NFL championship that year. It was still called the NFL championship back then. Actually, the very next year, the league merged with the AFL and the final game became the Super Bowl. But none of that mattered right then. What mattered was that a local sports writer in St. Louis noticed that the Viking players all stood and saluted the flag during the anthem. But the Cardinals players were very casual, even inattentive. It became a topic of conversation on sports radio. And as a result, the head coach told his players, listen, I don't know if it'll do any good, but it might. Next Sunday, I want you all to stand along sidelines, hold your helmet under your left arm, and stand at attention facing the flag while the national anthem is playing. It wasn't a big deal, just the coach of a losing team trying to get the press off his back. But for one player, it was a big deal. And I thought, this is bullshit. You don't have to tell me how I need to salute or not salute the flag. That's David Megacy. He's a linebacker, a pretty good one. He spent seven years in the NFL and could have played for longer. But, well, I'll get to that. This was 1969, the height of the Vietnam War, and David saw the new anthem rule as a political message from the league's head office. The league was pushing the war. I was an anti-war guy. (laughs) So my competitive (laughs) juices were saying, I think, This is bullshit. David, you see, was an active war resistor. So I decided what I would do. I was a little chicken about it. I said, okay, what I want to do is I'll stand, but I will bow my head and have my helmet between my legs, you know, and my crotch. It was actually quite similar to Kaepernick's original protests when he just stayed seated in the background. And of course, it was visible because everybody else was doing their hand over their hearts and all that, and I'm, I'm looking down. In the moment, it wasn't a big deal. The Cards and Browns played to a 21-21 tie, and then the team flew home to St. Louis. But the next day, in the local paper... That was a bit of a, a shitstorm. David got called out and labeled a traitor. You know, I didn't see a thing that about it. I mean... I think people have to remember it was exploding everywhere. And, you know, Kent State, you know, Martin Luther King, you know, it was just crazy time. Fans called him a commie and told him to go back to Hanoi. After three games, the coaches benched him. 
as an athlete, you'll appreciate that because I was a starter and I was a good player. And then I was benched. Yeah, for sure. I, I think a lot of people don't don't always realize how much how much politics go into sport. And when I was flying back after Green Bay, our last game, Larry Stallings, who was the left side linebacker, came over and he sat next to me and he said, you know, Dave, he said, uh, whatever happened with you and the coaches, they hurt our defense. You not playing hurt our defense. And so that was a real affirmation. To be clear, this wasn't the first time David gotten in trouble for his activism. As a professional football player, he was making considerably more money than most people in the anti-war movement. The office was in our house in St. Louis. And at that time, the movement did a major protest and I paid for the buses so people could go from St. Louis to Washington and New York. He even circulated a petition amongst his teammates opposing the war. He got 35 of them to sign it and gave it to members of Congress. None of this made him popular with his coaches or the team owners. Eventually, it was the coach of the defense, Chuck Drulis, who delivered the ultimatum. So I uh, went over to Chuck's uh, house and he said, I want to tell you is that if you do not stop your anti-war activities, you will be released. That was a deal David couldn't agree to, so he walked away. And that ended the career of the NFL's first anthem protester. And with everything you did, do you think that you made a difference? Yes. Frankly, I, I believe I did. To me, the biggest thing for me and I will take some credit about the athletes stepping up to the plate. Yeah, for sure. I think that's the biggest part that I see. I, I think I, I do see the steps we're making forward and, and the improvements we're making. Absolutely. All of that happened a long, long time ago. So how does that history inform the present and the future? For that, I sat down to talk with Jonathan Greenberg, He's one of the founders of the Institute for Nonviolence and Social Justice at the University of San Francisco. As far as I know, you're you're not a professional athlete, but I know you're friends with at least one, uh, David Megacy. Could you tell me a little bit about what's unique about his story? I've been friends with David Megacy for many years, and I have to say I'm very blessed to know him. David Megacy is, is an amazing person. He was a tremendous athlete, and he also was a person of, of really powerful conscience. And his conscience drew him more and more to deal with some of the main social issues that were happening at that time, especially the war in Vietnam and uh, racial justice issues. And he increasingly felt that he had to speak out about those issues. When an athlete speaks out on an issue, who's listening? We know that in our society, the truth is that there are certain figures that have a huge audience. And those figures might be celebrities, they might be actors, or they might be professional athletes. Professional athletes have an enormous audience. Different athletes can reach different audiences. 
in the case of Drew Brees, it's a fascinating case because here you had somebody who didn't feel comfortable with some of the protests that his teammates were taking around Black Lives Matter and taking the knee. Last year, Drew Brees, a white player, he's the quarterback of the New Orleans Saints and surefire Hall of Famer. He said, I will never agree with anybody disrespecting the flag of the United States of America or our country. In response, his teammates, most of them Black, sat down with him and explained their reasons for what they were doing. As a result, Drew changed his opinion and posted this on Instagram. I completely missed the mark on the issues we're facing right now as a country. I stand with the Black community in the fight against systemic racial injustice and police brutality. I will never know what it's like to be a Black man or raise Black children in America, but I will work every day to put myself in those shoes and fight for what is right. He went through a process of learning and of dialogue and of change that was very profound. And I think that had a huge impact on society, particularly because he was a white player and and a venerated star in which white people could see, wow, this is a process that he's going through. Maybe I can go through it too. And, And do you think that that took more courage than his original statement? Yes, I definitely think so. I think it took courage for him to go through that change because None of us like going through change. It's painful to go through change. And even more when we've made a public statement that we're now trying to retract or or disavow, That's that takes courage to do that. Mm-hmm. I find that that's a, a big piece that I value um, when I've had my teammates come back and and recognize the the missteps that they've communicated to me in the past and apologize for for what they've done or what they've said. And I think that that's a that's a huge important piece of athletes speaking up and recognizing their wrongs. Absolutely, it's a learning process. It's a process of growth, and all of us are going through it. And. And in this way, athletes can help the rest of society go through that kind of a process. I'm not quite ready to jump to the future. I've still got another historical story to share. But while I have Jonathan in front of the mic, I want to ask him his view of the relationships between athletes and team owners moving forward. You have owners and you have huge corporate businesses behind all of these professional teams. Their goal is to get that audience to come and buy tickets and to support the the corporate and business aspects of the entertainment side of sports, which is a huge part of sports. Mm-hmm. But that's that's not all of it. An enlightened view would suggest that those groups can work together to expand the base of the audience of the sport in ways that are radically positive for everybody and make it more inclusive and larger. The problem that we have is that we just have such a polarized political environment and people are afraid that they're going to trigger some kind of huge chain reaction on one side or another, and that causes a lot of excessive caution and fear. And 
I think that that caution and fear is understandable, but it needs to be overcome. And the way to overcome it is to say, we're in this together as a team and as a society, and we can enlarge the pie for everybody. So was David's refusal to salute the flag the original anthem protest? In the NFL, maybe. But 10 years before, another athlete did something very similar. The difference is she was a woman. And she was Black. And the price that she paid for her stance was much higher than getting benched. Arosanna Robinson was a generational athlete. A figure skater, a sprinter, and she was a national champion in high jump. So there she was, a member of the U.S. national team, decked out in a red, white, and blue uniform for the opening ceremonies in the 1959 Pan Am Games in Chicago. But when the anthem for the host country, her country, began to play, and 40,000 people in attendance stood up, she stayed sitting. Her reason? She said the anthem and the flag represented war, injustice, and hypocrisy. She was there to compete as an athlete, not to be a propaganda tool. Her actions didn't make headlines. There was no ESPN, and I'm pretty sure the president didn't rant about her on Twitter. It was actually just one small action in a lifetime of seeking change. A few years earlier, while living in Cleveland, she led a group trying to desegregate an ice skating rink. One evening, they staged a skating, where a group of black skaters joined the all-white crowd on the ice. Arosanna was such a gifted athlete, she was able to dart and glide through the crowd that was trying to catch her. It's a beautiful image, a woman using her athletic skill to show the world that she deserves to be there, that she belongs there. But it didn't end well. She was surrounded and knocked to the ice. Her arm was broken and she was carried away. She was also a member of the war tax resistance movement people who refused to pay their taxes because they knew their money was funding the U.S. war machine. Uh, It was about total refusal of the federal income tax because at the time, uh, about 50% of the federal income tax was used for militarism and war. That's Carl Meyer. He was 23 years old at the time. I had never heard of Arizona until we read in the newspapers that she had refused to respond to a summons from the Internal Revenue Service. This was February of 1960, just six months after she had refused to stand for the anthem. Arosanna had been ordered to pay $386 in back taxes. She refused and was sentenced to 12 months in jail. She immediately began a hunger strike and supporters started protesting. I was a principal person or organizing uh, support actions outside the federal court building where the IRS office was located. And we were picketing every day, 24 hours a day in shifts in support of her. Arosanna was transferred to a federal prison, Alderson in West Virginia. That took her out of state and away from the protesters. And so the vigil ended. 
And I felt deeply influenced by the example of this woman, and I wasn't willing to drop it. So I took, made leaflets about it. I went inside the federal building. I was arrested for trespass. I was sentenced to three days in jail. I served the three days in jail. I came out, I got myself together for a couple days. Then I went back in again, 15 days in jail. Out for a day or two, I went back in again. <laughs> three times Carl got arrested, all for a woman he had never met. But I felt while she's in prison, I'm going to be in prison too. All this time, Arosana continued to refuse food. She was wasting away physically, but her reputation was growing. The women in Alderson prison were getting the idea. They were influenced by her too. They were getting the idea of non-cooperation. So he released her. Starving herself for three months had severely damaged her health. Her career as an athlete was over, but she remained an activist her entire life. Athletes and celebrities have a tremendous influence on other people in our country. I read the local newspaper every day. There's one page of international news coverage and 14 pages of sports coverage. So athletes have a tremendous influence. But Arizona's influence was not as an athlete. I didn't support her because she was an athlete. <laughs> uh, but Colin Kaepernick, his influence was because he was an athlete. Muhammad Ali's influence was because he was an athlete. So athletes can have a tremendous influence. Maybe the most amazing thing about Arosana's story is how few people know about her. That brings up the question of why her story has been so undertold. As a historian, one of the things we talk about a lot is like silences, right? So like, where are the silences in history? Why are they silent? That's Dr. Amira Rose Davis. She's an assistant professor of history and African-American studies at Penn State University. And that silence for me was really apparent around the story of Rose Robinson. The first thing that got erased is the fact that she was an athlete. You even heard it in the way Carl talked about her. If you look at the, the newspapers, the Black newspapers at the time, if you look at Jet Magazine, right, they're saying athlete wasting away on hunger strike. They're saying athlete jailed, right? And then as the days go on, you start seeing news, newspaper headlines that's like peace activist, right? And so you can see how if you only pick up those newspapers, you lose sight of her being an athlete. But I think it's really important part of her story because she says it is. What prepared her to do the hunger strike was her athletic training and how her conditioning and how she thought about practice and how she thought about her body and where you just set a goal and you focus on that and then you condition yourself and you have patience and you develop it over time was the skills that she drew upon to stay in her hunger strike. But there is another reason Arosana doesn't get remembered the way Muhammad Ali or John Carlos and Tommy Smith do. She's a woman. I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about female athlete protests versus male athlete protests and, and how they're different. 
Oh, yeah, for sure. And I mean, I think that this is something that, right, is part and parcel of the legacy of people like Rose Robinson when we talk about, like, platforms and visibility and and erasure. One of the things that happens is that we get kind of into this conversation, right? Like, do you have more to risk or less to risk, right, if, you're, if you don't have the same level of endorsement? We saw that Colin, even though he's blackballed, he lost his career, he was able to get a contract with Nike, Yeah, right? And it wasn't until Natasha Cloud got, you know, a, a much smaller but still a deal with yes. Converse that we kind of saw what that might look like for, for women athletes. What Amira is talking about there is that Converse signed Tasha Cloud to an endorsement deal. Tasha is a WNBA player with the Washington Mystics. Converse very publicly said they signed her not despite her activism. It was largely because of it. That makes sense, because for the WNBA and the athletes in that league, activism isn't just something they do. It's part of who they are. So the WNBA, just their playing is political, right? Just their their mere presence and their their determination to not yield to people who tell them to go back to the kitchen or nobody's watching. They don't have the luxury of living in a world where sports and politics somehow don't coexist because the fight for accommodations, for professional opportunities, right, has always been one of politics. And so I think it primes people to be in a position where they're like, no, we got to speak out. Like that same energy that we bring to equal play, that same energy that people might bring to pride, like we absolutely have to bring that for police brutality. Like we have this in our DNA already, right, as athletes. And so we can't pull up short now when it becomes about race. W also recognized that, you know, they had the ability to move collectively as a league and to have the power in the whole league kind of making moves. And I think that that is very different than what we've seen their male counterparts do. And I mean, with with all that, do you think that the the strength of the impact of versus the men's game versus the women's game um, is is different in that sense that one has more impact than the other? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that what I like to think about is possibilities, right? And so I think what the WNBA has been doing has shown us more than almost anything else what possibilities there are um, and be able to move collectively as a league and say, hey, we're dedicating this to to Breonna Taylor. We're centering Black women in state-sanctioned violence and, and police brutality. We're also going to use our platforms in a way that do- doesn't assume we're the first ones here or that we need to be first or we need to lead. They look to the left, they look to the right, they look behind them, they look in front of them and they say, all right, here's this activist group over here who've been on the ground making changes, registering people to vote. Let's link with them. Yeah. Right? Here's these academics over here who've been talking about and theorizing this. And then they stretched out their arms. And that is expanding the collective, right? And we saw that strength, right, when they flipped Georgia. Yeah. And so I think that that blueprint that the W gave us is absolutely a kind of pathway that has an impact that's proven and that should be continued to be engaged with and and mimicked. I, I love that. I think that that's really what I'm trying to take to the NWHL right now and and express to them that this is how we should be doing things and, and this is how we're going to get more sponsors and this is how we're going to raise awareness and bring more women into the game. But I think it also needs to be kind of used in, in the men's side of things as well. Um, where do you think that that blueprint could take the the men's leagues? Yeah, I mean, I think we've seen like flashes of it, right? We're not seeing it applied league-wide. But if you go to various local spaces, right, like what the Saints are doing in New Orleans 
is absolutely a model of that blueprint that could be replicated. And what, you know, Black Patriot players have been doing about, you know, certain legislative issues within New England, specifically Boston, is another example of that. Um, And I think that that is really kind of where we're at is like what happens if they take the lesson of the W, which is to do it collective, to do it at at the league level, right? How can they take some of the work that they're already doing and and expand and widen and and do it? So what will it take for one of the big four men's leagues to implement the WNBA's blueprint for collective activism? Well, the only people who can really answer that question are the commissioners, the owners, the team presidents who run those leagues. Todd Lewicki has just joined that group. He is the president, CEO, and part owner of the Seattle Kraken, the newest franchise in the National Hockey League. What would you say is the hardest part of managing a franchise with athletes who are activists? Well, to be honest with you, I've worked in the NFL. I've been involved in the NBA. I've been involved in the MLS. And I've been involved with hockey. And I think community activism is one of the most powerful parts of the sport. And and I think that that's a really interesting thing, at least in North America. The teams are expected to lead in the communities. So activism is a fantastic part of that. And uh, we're going to be activists. We want to end youth homelessness here. Mm -hmm. We want to help our world heal and become uh, stronger relative to green initiatives and sustainability. Uh, But we also have spoken out and made our opinions clear that, um, you know, that this, uh, the world needs more diversity, needs more inclusion. And, uh, you know, on that, we're, we're less into lecturing and more into action. For sure. And I mean, by the sounds of that, it sounds like the Kraken will be an activist in itself. Um, is, is that something that you're, you're aiming towards? Well, you know, I think activism is a word that can sometimes scare people. And we're trying to use different words because I think most people want the same things. Yes. Most people do want diversity and do want the sport of hockey to be healthy and do want more faces of color on team benches and seeing more women. And, and we can speak with our words, but speaking with our actions is so much more powerful and building a high performance organization. That's one of the most important things we can do instead of lecturing to people and intimidating people because it is intimidating. Uh, Sometimes people feel as though you're trying to find blame. There's no blame here. Let's just get it right. Let's envision a better world and be that world. And, And then all of a sudden we'll look up one day and say, wow, how cool was that? How can you be proactive rather than reactive uh, with the Seattle Kraken? Well, we've been different. You know, we've we've started something from absolute scratch. Uh, today, um, about 45% of our staff represent gender diversity, and 26% of our staff represent BIPOC diversity. We've shown that you can hire, um, you know, a diverse staff. You can find diversity and and areas of expertise required to build an organization. It might take a little longer because I think that what happens is when you hire someone and then they're under pressure to build out a team, they go back to who they've known and what they've known. And it's a totally understandable dynamic. Yeah. Um, but if that's how it works, then you're only going to hire, you know, people who, are, who look like and have had common and similar experience. And so... Um, You know, if we had said, look, to work here, you have to have worked 
uh, for an NH, another NHL team, that would have been quite confining and we probably wouldn't have achieved these goals that we've set forward on both gender and BIPOC diversity. And I mean, we know that the NHL player base and the fan base is largely white. Yeah, you know, and I think there's reasons why there maybe hasn't been as much diversity, but I think it's changing and I think it's changing substantially. I'll give you an example, and that is where we've located our training facility. Uh, we're building an absolutely fantastic three-sheet facility. It'll be the mm-hmm. first sheets of ice in the city of Seattle. Uh, the city is we have eight rinks around us or eight facilities around us uh, in the broad metropolitan area, but the city of Seattle didn't have one sheet of ice. So our objectives on diversity and inclusion are going to really be facilitated by where we physically have put the facility. And it's powerful because the perception is that certain people maybe don't belong in this game or aren't welcome. And when they do get welcomed into the game and we do find ways that they can engage in the game, it has the potential to be more powerful than perhaps some other sports that uh, there are not perceived barriers to. So we're really, really excited. So speaking of actions, we started this episode talking about Colin Kaepernick. That was about five years ago. Um, Will you be playing the national anthem before the Kraken Games? And do you think any of your players will take a knee? Well, I don't know if they'll take a knee, but we intend on playing the anthems, both the U.S. and the Canadian. Um, People have come to us and asked their opinions on this, including some players. And uh, I think that... uh, You know, there's two ways to go about this. You can inspire people or you can shame people. And I have always been one to say, let's try and find the inspirational path here because I think it results in real long-term change. And uh, we're not going to lecture. We're not going to try and grandstand. We're not going to try and make people uncomfortable. What we're going to try and do is make them comfortable and lead on these issues in a way that's inspiring and not threatening. And uh, people might say that's a cop-out, too late for that. I don't think so. So I want to leave you with a question. Has taking a knee run its course? The U.S. national women's soccer team, which had collectively been taking a knee for four years, has decided to stop. Crystal Dunn, a defender on the team, said, We never expected to be kneeling forever. It doesn't mean the root issues have been solved, but perhaps the impact, the attention garnered by anthem protests has diminished. I mean, it's not really shocking anymore. Colin Kaepernick is very clear on when it will be his time to stop taking a knee. When there's significant change and I feel like that flag represents what it's supposed to represent and this country is representing people the way that it's supposed to, I'll stand. One thing that has already been accomplished is that people are having conversations, uncomfortable conversations, and that hasn't been easy. I think Gwen Berry said it best. I feel like, you know, our white counterparts and our white associates, um, until they're uncomfortable, they won't get it. They could never feel like us, so being uncomfortable is the least that they can put up with. And, you know, they don't even like that. That's just privilege. (laughs) And that is what has to change first if we're going to create change on everything else. I'm Soroya Tinker. This has been Shut Up and Play. Thanks for listening. 
This was only episode one. In the coming episodes, Shut Up and Play will touch on a wide range of topics that athletes care about, like race, religion, politics, war, gender, sexuality, and the rights of college athletes. We'll go inside the world of professional sports to find out how athletes and their commitments to cause reflect and shape the social changes we see and seek in our wider communities. This series is produced by Waves Edge Canada Group and the Evo Sports Collective. If you'd like to get involved as a sponsor, advertiser, or guest, please reach out to us on the show's website at shutupandplaypodcast.com. Thank you for listening and thank you to our gracious guests. Also, thanks to David Megacy for his 50 years of activism and protection of athletes. Without David, Shut Up and Play would not exist. (laughs) 